Welcome to the NutraCast, a production by Nutra Ingredients USA. I'm Danielle Masterson. Thank you for joining me here on the NutraCast, where we talk and share insights from inside the nutrition industry. As transgender Americans gain visibility, a recent Pew Research survey found that 1.6% of U.S. adults are transgender or non-binary, meaning their gender differs from the sex they were assigned at birth. That rate is even higher for younger adults, with 5% of those under 30 identifying as trans or non-binary. Traditionally, nutrition assessments are gender-specific, with one set of guidelines for men and another for women. So what does that mean for those who are in the middle? Joining me now is Dr. Taylor Wallace, a food scientist, editor of the Journal of Dietary Supplements, deputy editor of the Journal of the American College of Nutrition, and founder of the Think Healthy Group. That's a nutrition consulting firm. Hi, Dr. Wallace, and welcome to the NutriCast. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to talk about this really important topic. I am too. Thank you so much for joining me here. Um, now, you wrote an article called Nutrition for the Transgender Community. That was back in 2017, well before this was a common conversation. What inspired you to take that topic on? Well, it's actually quite a fascinating story. I've been doing nutrition research now for, gosh, more than 15 years. And I am big in the LGBT community. I'm very out and, and gay. Um, and I served on the local pride board here in Washington, D.C. And a few years ago, we decided to have a transgender health day, and I was asked to give a nutrition presentation. And just to make a long story short, I gave this presentation, very general, like here's what the dietary guidelines say, here's what you should eat. And I started getting all these questions that were very specific to transgender nutrition about different types of medications and what to do during the transition process, during surgery, things like that. And it just really hit me. Uh, I went back that evening and looked on Google and there were really no resources. And so that's what really inspired me. At the same time, I had a transgender grad student at George Mason University that I was advising, who obviously was interested in nutrition and obviously nutrition for himself. And so uh, we started digging a little bit deeper and we started publishing articles and, and doing research in the area because there's real data gaps and just giving generalized nutrition information to subpopulations like this is just somewhat egregious in my opinion. Yeah, there are so many gaps in research there. Uh, in your article, you noted that transgender men and women often face different nutritional challenges. Could you maybe give some examples of some of those challenges that they face? Well, so first and foremost, there's body image challenges, right? So mm -hmm. if you transition male to female, you might be trying to slender down your body type to fit the more, you know, I guess what society would say is more of a female body type. And so there's different, you know, dietary strategies that those individuals use. And we often find that there's a lot of, I wouldn't say eating disorders, but disordered eating. Um, so missing certain food groups to try to, you know, get to that uh, optimal body size. You see that on the opposite spectrum for individuals who are female to male transgender. They often want to hide their you know, if they haven't had a mastectomy or they often like to hide body features that would look more feminine. And so you see an increased intake of things like 
sports nutrition supplements, whether it be for weightlifting or protein powders or things to gain weight. And so there are always nutritional consequences to that. Secondly, there's the transition phase, right? We don't know a lot about transgender reassignment surgery and how nutrition impacts those outcomes, but we do know a lot about how nutrition can impact surgery and recovery just in general. And then finally, there are the different hormones and medications that are used, which can substantially alter one's nutritional requirement. And a good example of that is many transgender females use diuretics. And diuretics, of course, you need to avoid potassium. And so in that original presentation that I gave, Transgender Health Day here in Washington, D.C., I was encouraging fruits and vegetables and things like bananas that are rich in potassium without really realizing what was in front of me. And so, again, that's what really got me interested in in looking into this and and doing research and putting evidence-based information out there for people because, you know, they need it. Yeah. And so how do you kind of dissect the different needs? Because there's so many different phases, right? Right. Well, and what is really, you know, sad about the entire situation is that our government puts no resources towards this. Um, If you look at our National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey, which is an annual survey that we do of a nationally representative sample of U.S. individuals of all ages, Uh, They don't include transgender individuals nor non-binary. You know, you can tease out gay and lesbian, but that's pretty much the only groups you can tease out using that data set. And what that means is that we don't really know a lot about the health disparities that transgender individuals in the U.S. face. And so it's hard to make recommendations when you don't really have any, you know, evidence behind what the issue is. So I think one of the first and foremost things we can do is allocate more money through the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention to uh, studying transgender populations so that we understand better the health issues that they face, whether it's after, during, or before reassignment surgery. There is so much that we still have yet to learn. What about following, say, a full transition? I was reading uh, something you wrote about iron requirements. Right. And so, When you go through full transition, obviously, you know, gender-specific multivitamins, for instance, change a little bit. I mean, we tend to uh, put more iron in a a cisgender female's multivitamin because they're menstruating, and women lose a lot of blood through menstruation, and so their iron requirement is higher. When you fully transition um, and you're not menstruating any longer, then you have more, or at least in my opinion, your iron intake should be more reflective of what um, a cisgender male would be because you're, you're not losing blood, you're not menstruating. There are probably several other examples you could use with vitamins and minerals. That, to me, was uh, the one that stood out the most. But, you know, I work a lot with this vitamin called choline, which 90% of Americans don't get enough of, but it's very important in brain development and brain maintenance. We're actually seeing a lot of effects in cohort studies that we're running in our lab on prevention of Alzheimer's disease. And choline is very driven by the body's estrogen levels. So if you think about someone who's female to male transitioning and they're starting to take uh, different hormones and their estrogen levels lower, then they, they might actually have a very different choline requirement than what you would see 
in a, you know, again, a cisgender female. Um, and so there's no research on that. So, you know, it, again, there's so many questions here and I can give, you know, kind of a, a scientific opinion. The Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics just did a scoping review of the entire scientific body of literature in regard to transgender nutrition. And what they found is a lot of survey data. And they find, you know, that people like me who care, that have, you know, minimal resources, you know, because, you know, the National Institutes of Health and the Centers for Disease Control aren't currently funding any big projects in this area. But they rely on people like me that, you know, want to do good for the world. And, you know, we do what we can with minimal resources, uh, but there's no government funds to support it. So you see a bunch of surveys and, um, you know, correlations, but we really need those clinical trials and that causation research to begin to really decipher some of these questions. Yeah. And what do you think about those personalized tests? You know, the ones that you get mailed to your house and you can kind of send like a blood sample back to to get levels and things on different vitamins. Do you think that would be a good option for somebody in the trans community? Well, I'll say this. Those tests are in their infancy for the general population, or I guess I should say for the cisgender population. When it comes to the transgender population, look, I mean, it depends on where you are in the transition, what types of hormones that you're taking. Um, So with anything like that, it's always good to you know, really have a lot of communication with your doctor or your health professional. And there are actually, you know, I I think it is really neat um, because this topic has really boomed the last couple of years. I see sessions at my professional society meetings on this topic all the time. There are actually registered dietitian nutritionists that work with transgender patients. Uh, across the country. And you can find those RDNs at eatright.org. And so, you know, it's growing. There's more people interested. But the main thing is, you know, you've got to talk with your health professional because the last thing you want to do is be on a medication that certain vitamin supplement or a certain diet regimen counters, right? And I think that's important. And, And again, right now we know a lot, for instance, about the interactions of like estrogen with nutrients, but we don't know uh, a lot about, for instance, when you give a male to female uh, transitioning uh, individual estrogen and what that does to, for example, their calcium requirement. So we're, we're given a lot of guesses here. In one sense, that's a good thing because that really gets everybody fired up that we need more evidence and it really kind of bangs the gong to our government agencies and, you know, the big nonprofit scientific societies that something needs to be done here. Uh, the downside is for a while until we have better evidence, we're not going to have the answers to many questions and it's, we're going to rely on scientific opinion. Mm-hmm. And what do we know about, say, sex steroid therapy? How does that affect the health status? Well, mainly we know sex steroid therapy can alter your uh, blood cholesterol levels um, and triglyceride levels in the blood. And so that can alter your risk for cardiovascular diseases, especially later in life. And again, most of this data is from the Women's Health Initiative, a big, large, randomized control trial back in the early 2000s that looked at estrogen therapy in uh, women that had reached the postmenopausal state. And they looked at it in regard to heart disease and, and osteoporosis and bone health. Again, that cisgender women, the biochemistry there is very different than if you're transitioning. I actually have a, a theory in my 
long-term mentor, Connie Weaver, and I have been kind of brainstorming how to get funding to do this. But we actually think when you give a, a male uh, estrogen, that it actually has the opposite effect of what happens when you give a cisgender female uh, estrogen. We know estrogen is super protective to bone in cisgender females uh, and keeps calcium from coming out of the bone. It's, it's very protective. But we actually have this theory that uh, in males that that might not be because the natural testosterone would give an imbalance to estrogen. There's a, a, a lot of different theories out there. Um, and so we've been thinking about how do we propose like even a small clinical trial um, out there to, uh, you know, you're talking 10, 20 people uh, to the National Institutes of Health because bone health is a big issue. We're all living longer. You know, fractures are one of the most expensive burdens to healthcare in the U.S. And so I'm a bone researcher uh, in, in my past life. So I think a lot about bone um, because usually when you start talking about medicines and surgeries and things like that, bone is greatly impacted. Weight loss, nutrition, bone's pretty harshly impacted most of the time. Okay. And since we're talking about bone health, the National Osteoporosis Foundation recommends all kids and teens get enough calcium and vitamin D and physical activity to ensure strong bones. What about kids and transgender teens. What do we know about that group? Do they stick to their normal health recommendations based on what they were born as? Or how does that work with, with kids and teenagers? I mean, for now, I would say yes, that that would be appropriate. Uh, again, there's no research in this area. And actually, it's, it's great that you mentioned the National Osteoporosis Foundation. Before I started my own company, I actually was their chief science officer for almost six years. Oh, okay. Uh, a really good work, you know, in this area. I actually wrote all their <laughs> stuff on uh, kids' bone health that you were referring to. Uh, you know, I think with kids, you know, obviously their bones are expanding, they're elongating, um, they're becoming larger and stronger until they reach what we call peak bone mass at about age 23, 24. That's the largest, strongest bones you're ever going to have. And so things like calcium are very important in that late childhood to early adolescence through puberty and even into young adulthood stage uh, because you want to build those bones as strong as you can so that you prevent fractures later in life. Just a 5% change in bone mass at the time at which an individual reaches peak bone mass can result in a 25 to 50% reduction in hip fracture later in life. So these little details, you know, while, while 5% of bone mass might not sound big, uh, it actually can mean quite a huge healthcare cost savings uh, in uh, in the population, and it can reduce the risk of fractures. And if you think about it, especially if you are a um, a female to male transitioning uh, individual that's starting to be given, you know, male sex steroid hormones, that could greatly leach the calcium out of your bone, definitely more than five percent. So I think it's kids and teenagers are really, really. I mean, adults. You know, adults kind of stay stable. Well, at least <laughs> at least men stay stable. Women that menstruate kind of go a little crazy once a month. Their metabolism gets off, which mm -hmm. makes it gets all like out of whack. And that makes them hard to study. But mostly, you know, cisgender adults, we understand they're pretty stable until women reach menopause. Um, they're pretty consistent. But with kids, their metabolism, their growth, the rates of growth 
are always changing and likely our nutrient requirements for kids and teenagers um, are inaccurate anyway. You know, most of our nutrient recommendations are from uh, were developed in 1998. Congress still hasn't allocated money to update nutrient recommendations for just the general population. But now you think about adding sex steroid hormones and, um, you know, transitioning and different dietary regimens, and those nutrient requirements could be uh, quite different. And there could be some risk in just saying, you know, I usually recommend everyone take a multivitamin. Uh, there could be some risk in that for some populations. Um, you know, I gave iron as the example. I mean, iron, if you get too much and you're not menstruating, it can build up in your system. You know, vitamin K is another one. If you're taking a, a blood thinner, it can counter the effect of that blood thinner. Um, so, um, you know, some of our generalized recommendations, you know, just might not be appropriate. So that's really, again, where you have to find that registered dietitian, nutritionist and that doctor that has experience serving the transgender population and really have an open communication with them about some of these issues. Yeah, definitely. Now, this conversation we're having seems so niche, but I, I, as I stated in my intro, you know, about 5% of those under 30 do identify as trans or non-binary. They're in, in Washington, D.C. Is that something that you're seeing with especially the younger group, about 5%? Absolutely. And again, it depends on, you know, personalized nutrition is a big thing anyway, right? So, mm -hmm. Now, if you identify as non-binary, but you have a dietary pattern and you're not taking any types of medications that would alter your nutrition um, and you've got a decent physical activity, then you're probably fine. If you're taking medications, if you're undergoing transition, if you're on different types of hormones, maybe there's medications you're taking for depression or to uh, alleviate certain symptoms uh, then it begins to be more complicated and it begins to be more personalized. And here in Washington, D.C., we have a great organization called Whitman Walker Health um, that services the LGBTQIA plus community. They do a really good job at working with transgender patients. And I've done a little bit of work with them uh, in the past. And I actually think that they would be a great resource to um, provide some data for additional research because, they have, you know, over 10 years of uh, what we call longitudinal data on many transgender individuals. Washington, D.C. has the uh, highest population of, of transgender individuals in the country. Um, and we like to think of our community as a safe space. And I think Whitman Walker could uh, potentially play a, a much larger role in data collection, but also letting individuals like me, you know, look at data from individuals uh, that they've been treating over the last decade uh, to, again, look at what these health ailments are, uh, where the abnormalities lie, and where we think we can intervene the best. Because one of the problems is you can't just go to NIH and say, hey, I've got this idea for a clinical trial. You need to have some idea that, you know, these millions of dollars of taxpayer money that you're using is going to work or be beneficial to society, and you have to write a proposal and have some type of preclinical data. I think that's where the LGBTQIA plus communities and their nonprofit associations and advocacy groups can play a very big role in helping people like me develop that preclinical data. Yeah, I'm glad you threw that out there. And hopefully some folks that are listening maybe will take that into consideration. Uh, before I let you go, what's next for you? Do you have any updates or research or announcements? Yeah, well, like you said, I'm the editor in chief of the journal of Dietary Supplements. 
And my research interest, of course, spans dietary supplements. And we're actually working on submitting a new publication. Again, we have quite an advantage uh, in Washington, D.C., because we have such a large transgender population. We were actually able to look at dietary supplement use among the transmasculine community, uh, which hasn't been done before um, because, you know, by far transgender females uh, are more, there's more transgender females, at least in the U.S. population. And so it's hard to find an adequate sample size around the country of transmasculine individuals to have anything that's statistically significant. And so we're actually in the process of submitting that data to a journal. And I I think there are some striking differences uh, in what the normal U.S. population consumes regarding dietary supplements and what transmasculine individuals do. And I think we need to take notice to that data so that we can give better guidance to these individuals. That's really fascinating. We'll have to keep our eyes out for that. Dr. Taylor Wallace, thank you so much for coming on the NutriCast and walking us through this complex topic. There's certainly so much more to learn, but this conversation has definitely been so helpful to me and hopefully to those in the trans community. Absolutely. And you know what? This um, podcast has inspired me. I will update that 2017 blog with as much (laughs) new information as possible because I know the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics has came out with some resources and there's a group at UC Davis that has as well. So I will try to update that website in the next week or so and have that up where people have resources. You know, sometimes it takes the podcast to remind you that, oh, you know, that is 2017. I probably should update that because there's a lot more out there right now than there was in 2017. So thank you for putting that out. <laughs> yeah. And you know what? I will be sure to link it on NutroIngredients-USA.com. Awesome. All right, Dr. Taylor Wallace, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. If you like what you just heard, you can subscribe to the NutriCast wherever you get your podcast. You can also head to NutriIngredients-USA.com for even more Nutri-related content. Thank you for listening. I'm Danielle Masterson. As always, I'll catch you here on the NutriCast next week. <laughs>